podcast focused on lessons learned via the musician's backstory, as well as building successful careers in the business. My name is Allison M., and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. Let's get down to business. On this episode of the Musician's Venture Podcast, I have with me in the studio here Stephen Alacara. He is the founder of Millennial Action Project, host of Meeting in Middle America podcast, and board member of the Sherilyn Wilson Center for the Arts, and also currently exploring a run for the U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, but more importantly for this podcast, also a musician. So <laughs> welcome, Stephen. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Allison. Yeah. Very honored to be here. Yeah. And and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk with you. I'm going to start off first by asking you the music-based questions, because mm-hmm. that's that's what this podcast is about. But of course, there's a lot more to talk about, too. Um, but tell me, I'm, so I met you through the, the Sherilyn Wilson Center for the Arts, uh, where we're both uh, involved and through the Guitar Festival, really, primarily. But uh, And you are a guitarist and musician yourself. Yeah? Yes. So can you tell me, uh, tell the audience here what exactly you do in music? Well, it all started when I was in elementary school. I saw a band performing at the school science fair, and I think that is the moment I caught the bug. The Mm -hmm. next year, I was in third grade, and I convinced my parents to buy me an electric guitar. My fingers were too small to barely even reach Mm -hmm. the strings, but my dream was really to play guitar in a rock band. And so uh, I took some lessons, started learning a lot on my own, and by the time I got to fifth grade, my brother had started his own rock band. He was in high school at the time, and I convinced my brother to let me play with them Mm -hmm. and become part of the band. And it all took off from there. I just was so passionate about playing music in a band. And still at that age, though, not a lot of my peers are performing in bands. And so I had to reach into a little bit of the older like high school demographic to start forming those groups. And it really spanned the gamut stylistically. It started off with rock and roll, and then I got into jazz music and hip-hop and funk. I had a James Brown cover band. (laughs) I had a hip-hop band that was inspired by The Roots, which was a lot of fun. We had a turntables guy and a breakdancer as part of that band, uh, always a crowd pleaser. And I even had a klezmer band, which was very active in the Milwaukee Jewish community here. So I I played a lot of different genres and really got into songwriting. Um, Really throughout that process, I still remember uh, writing songs on any piece of paper or notation software I could find, uh, dating back to probably fifth grade. Wow. And I'm still still songwriting to this day. Yeah, yeah. So what was it about like all the different genres that drew you to them? Why why couldn't you just stick with one? Well, it's a good question. I think I became very curious about people and cultures mm-hmm. through music. Mm-hmm. And each genre taps into a different subculture within the community. Mm-hmm. And so I remember feeling like if I'm playing hip hop or I'm playing funk, I'm playing rock, uh, I was learning something new about the community and about people. And in the context of greater Milwaukee, music was a rare force 
to transcend and bridge and understand a lot of the divides that are in the community, divides that are racial, socioeconomic, and political. And not only were my bands a motley crew of a lot of these differences, but also the audiences were too. So that's what got me really excited about different styles. I just felt like I was learning a lot through music. So, for example, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, um, Yiddish culture mm-hmm. and traditional Jewish culture by playing klezmer music. Um, Can you explain what yeah. klezmer music is? Yes. So klezmer music is a traditional kind of uh, Jewish music mm-hmm. you might hear at a bar mitzvah, for mm-hmm. example. And it sounds, um, you know, the main instruments would have an electric or acoustic guitar, tambourine, uh, an accordion, upright bass, mm-hmm. vocalist. Uh, and sometimes a violin player. Um, mm-hmm. And and that band also played other forms of Eastern European folk music. So we had a mandolin as well. Uh, very high energy. Mm-hmm. Definitely got people dancing every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was also playing classical. So you mentioned the Wilson Center. Mm-hmm. So I remember when the Wilson Center was first built. Uh, and, and it was such a great performing venue. And so our school bands would play there. And it's one of the reasons why I was really honored when they asked me to serve Mm -hmm. on the board, because I've, I'm pretty sure I've performed at the Wilson Center out in Brookfield uh, more times than any other venue. So Mm -hmm. uh, playing classical music there was also really special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful venue. And you're lucky to have grown up with that. Yeah. And and you are from Brookfield originally. Yeah. Yes. Um, And so how did you even go about finding some of the people to make up some of these bands that you played with? Because yeah. I, I can't imagine you would just find them in Brookfield, would you? No, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we found a couple musicians in Brookfield, but we were reaching out to musicians in, in Wauwatosa, Milwaukee, pretty much the entire yeah. greater Milwaukee area. So this is how I got to really, again, I it, it, it's if your universe is not only just uh, reserved to people in your local town, and people in your high school, you're missing out on a lot of perspectives out yeah. there. I remember, as crazy as this sounds, just when I was playing with musicians who went to Tosa East, mm-hmm. I felt like I was gaining a new perspective. Just, mm-hmm. just the cultural differences between Brookfield and Wauwatosa, right. <laughs> as an example. I remember playing with some musicians from uh, Rufus King High yeah. School. And so, you know, I met people, I would say jazz, the jazz community was the main vehicle I had for meeting different musicians, Uh, programs like uh, the Conservatory of Music in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. jazz camps uh, was one way we met people. And eventually, I think through this, we had a core nucleus of a sort of rhythm section. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, through musicians would just add on to for depending on the band we had. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I was in the mindset of, I was, I was really serious about it back then. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, we got to rehearse. Mm-hmm. we got to record our demo. we got to get gigs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at that age, not everyone has the same motivation. A lot of people mm-hmm. are playing just for fun. And so I think that's one other reason maybe I had a lot of different bands is uh, having um, groups that could satiate that desire I mm-hmm. had to be putting out as much music as possible. Yeah, you're very driven at a very early age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I would actually also agree about that because I, I grew up going through the Milwaukee Youth Symphony Program, mm. and that was really nice because um, you, that was an organized system, but that's where I got to meet a lot of different um, people from all over the 
southeast and Wisconsin area, mm-hmm. and that really expanded my own horizons too. So I, I'm with you on that. That's maybe one of the reasons we get along so well. So. Yes, yeah. <laughs> one of many. Yes, yeah, and uh, so. Were you always playing guitar in these bands, or was was it ever anything else? It was a number of different instruments. I was sort of the utility player in many yeah. ways. Uh, I in in the hip hop band, I was playing bass because we couldn't find another bass yeah. player. I had a punk rock band that sort of sounded like Green Day meets Radiohead. Yeah, and nice. that one I was playing bass as well and backup vocals. Uh, I'm also a drummer as well. I would say drums is right up there with guitar for me. So in the funk band, I was playing drums. And in jazz groups, I primarily played drums as well. Cool. What do you consider your main instrument? I I would say the main instrument is guitar, but Mm -hmm. drums are... I I was more formally trained in in drums, mainly because uh, when you're going through school music programs, guitar is not an available Mm -hmm. instrument Mm -hmm. to play. Sometimes in jazz band, I would convince them to let me mm-hmm. play guitar, but that was much more an optional mm-hmm. experience. So, you know, my a lot of my formal training in music uh, came through percussion and drums. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then, uh, where were some of your place the places that you would play out yes. at? Oh, all over. So, I remember. I'll, I'll I'll mention a few and then I'll give you the grand finale. Okay. Okay. Go for Are you it. Ready? Yeah. So a few that come to mind. Uh, the Waukesha Expo Center. Wow. They had a, I think it was called the Taste of Summer, like a okay. summer festival going on. We would play an area Battle of the Bands, mm-hmm. uh, and we won the Brookfield East Battle of the Bands and Tosa East Battle of the Bands. Although Tosa East wasn't really judged by musicians. It was basically <laughs> a fundraiser. So whichever band could raise the most money <laughs> for the cause, we ended up winning. Uh, so that's one way well, to measure it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember, we um, I have performed at the Conservatory of Music a number of times, uh, different bars and restaurants around town. We mentioned the Wilson mm-hmm. Center. I think I've performed there at least twenty times mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. And but let me give you the the big one. Mm-hmm. So my dream growing up was to perform at Summerfest. And uh, one day, uh, actually senior year of high school, we finally had the chance uh, to play at Summerfest. I was sitting in with the band, actually, nice. and it was one of the evening slots. So that wow, was pretty cool. Oh, that's yeah. a big deal, especially yeah. well, for anyone, really, but especially for a high schooler. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a good crowd, a good day for it? We had a great crowd, beautiful night. And since we were right next to the headliner, we yeah. had a pretty big audience for that. Who was the headliner? Leanne Rhymes. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. Did you get to meet her then? <laughs> I did. I did meet her backstage very briefly on her way out to the trailer. Wow. And uh, <laughs> this is going to sound very random. But the one thing I remember from that experience was, um, you know, I met her. I was complimenting her. Uh, as crazy as this sounds, we were performing after her. And I actually still don't have an explanation of how that happened. <laughs> but uh-huh. her audience, t- like thousands of people were out there. And I met her behind the scenes, and uh, this is going to sound so random, but it's the thing I remember about it, is she was really big on, like, Purell, so maybe she was, like, a little (laughs) ahead of her time. And so she was meeting people after every time she would shake someone's hand, she was putting on the Purell. Interesting. And... uh, and and so she was lots of handshaking, Purell, and then she went straight to her 
tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So maybe she fared all right during this COVID she pandemic. She maybe did. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I yeah. like that. I wonder. Yeah. Good to know. And um, I also have to ask you about band names yes. since you were in so many. So what were some of the band names? Yeah. Well, we had some good ones and then some that we thought way too hard about yeah so, <laughs> and you you've you interact with so many musicians i mean the band name is a creative expression of, yeah. of the music in many ways so this eastern european klezmer band was called the red squares and um that's awesome yeah and that that was one of the better names the funk r&b band that would play like james brown earth wind and fire tower of power which I saw is coming to Summerfest this summer. That band was called Bump City, which is named after a record, uh, a Tower of Power record. If there's anyone who's listening who's a big fan of 70s era funk, they, uh, they'll know what I'm talking yeah. about. The hip-hop band was called Hyde Park, named after Hyde Park mm -hmm. in, in, on the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. There's a whole story around that. <laughs> and what else? I remember... Um, the original band that was really the one that I was leading and the lead songwriter for was called The Prosody, P-R-O-S-O-D-Y. Look it up in the dictionary. That was one where maybe we tried a little too hard, but we wanted to find a really cool word that summed up the nature of harmonies and melodies, and that's what that word was kind of yeah. speaking to. And then two other fun ones. So the punk rock band was called Ferocious Green, and then the group kind of evolved into more of an experimental Radiohead-esque band, and that one became New Age Noise. That's awesome. Yeah. That's that's quite the the uh, the rap sheet there. So. Oh, oh, I didn't even get into the jazz groups. That was oh, a lot man. of different ones. Um, one was Jazz Soup. Oh, uh, that's awesome. And then, as you know, a lot of jazz groups are often named after like the lead trumpet player, saxophone mm -hmm. player. So uh, one trumpet player I played with who is one of the greatest musicians I've ever played with. He's actually back in Milwaukee. His name's Sam Neufeld. Okay. Uh, so check him out. Nelson Devereaux from Wauwatosa. He's gone on to play with people like Justin Vernon and Boney Bear. Nice. Uh, so sometimes it's named after our, yeah. our front people. Cool. Yeah. Wow. You were there with some some really good folks. And you are a really good musician. <laughs> I mean, you weren't just there. You've gone on and you've gone on to do some of your own big projects here so yes. and and i think i'll save some of that for the end um but you know so, so speaking of going on to do big things like you're, you've gone on to do some other big things that are not necessarily music related so i think now we'll talk about that a little bit so you're founder of the millennial action project so how did you get involved into i mean so you went on to to madison mm -hmm. to study at uw madison you didn't necessarily go into music at that time but what did you go into instead? Well, it, 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 you know, my, my interest in, in music and political change uh, might seem as disparate mm -hmm. venues, but to me, they're totally interlinked, and the music led to the politics and public mm -hmm. service. And I should have mentioned probably the biggest bridge there was becoming a radio DJ here in Milwaukee. Uh, if we have any 91.7 oh. WMSC fans, please reach out. If anyone, awesome. if, you, if you know anything about WMSC, the DJs there, and I include myself as part of that, have very eclectic and eccentric musical interests. And yeah. if you ever tune in, like one minute you could be listening to death metal, and the next minute you're listening to blues, and then you're listening to yes. reggae. I remember I would introduce the, the reggae show on, on Thursday evenings. And that was the bridge for me to get into public service because 
I noticed how it's a very community-oriented radio station. Yes, it is. And I noticed the power of bringing people from diverse backgrounds together to serve the community. So the music was right there with the community service. And I was looking for then an expression of that really in our politics because I would see how polarized and divisive Mm -hmm. our politics had become. And I realized, you know, what's right about jazz, which is listening, call and response, improvisation, being fully present with people is the spirit we need in a successful Mm -hmm. democracy. So when I was at Madison, I started getting involved uh, in politics Mm -hmm. as an undergraduate and That's what ultimately led to founding the Millennial Action Project, Mm -hmm. which is taking on this toxic, polarized culture by training a generation of leaders Mm -hmm. in public service, uh, largely elected office, to lead with empathy, to lead with compassion, Mm -hmm. uh, to lead with a spirit of bridge building and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I strongly believe that we're at an inflection point in our democracy and we need uh, those inclusive leaders to bring not only our state but also our country together. And the basic curiosity I had about people and cultures through music, the true value of listening to people uh, with curiosity as opposed to prejudgment. I learned through music, the idea of being creative and improvising by being fully present with people, I learned through music. Mm -hmm. Those are the skills we need for successful political leaders. So I'm trying to really elevate that uh, in our politics now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us, so did you go right from Madison to developing the Millennial Action Project? You know, there was a little bit of uh, experiences in between there. Um, one of the big issues I care a lot about is the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm uh, actually the first environmental studies major from mm-hmm. UW-Madison. And so wow. um, <laughs> I've always wanted to figure out how we could create an environmental policy that's good for future generations and mm-hmm. sustainable. Uh, but there are a lot of divisions in that space, too, like how do you balance uh, business interests with environmental mm-hmm. protection? So I was really focused on working with some environmental NGOs, both at the uh, the state level as well as at the, the national federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked very briefly at the World Bank focused on sustainable development and environmental protection. And the realization I had was, Here I am working in what I would call the single issue space. So you're working on the environment or you're working on criminal justice reform or another issue. And I kept realizing that we're hitting our heads up against the wall of democratic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. In other words, the health of our democracy, of our political system is being is in many ways the fundamental issue here. Mm -hmm. If, If we don't have leaders and communities are able to work together across our lines of difference, then we're not able to solve problems. And so that's when I moved from the environmental space into the democracy space and founding Millennial Action Project. Um, I, I, I realized we need a systemic shift in our political culture and the way we approach issues if we're going to solve mm-hmm. the environment. And the interesting thing is, so with MAP, Millennial Action Project, a lot of what we would do is build coalitions around pieces of legislation and get it over the finish line. And I realized when we were working on a clean energy environmental uh, funding bill, I was making more of a difference on that issue Mm -hmm. through Millennial Action Project than I often was through 
the environmental NGO work that I was doing previously, mm -hmm. because here we are actually systemically solving a problem through legislation, getting Democrats, Republicans on board with it. Um, whereas a lot of the environmental groups I was working with wasn't able to get that consensus. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the consensus, most of the time the legislation's not passing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of the uh, mental logic I was going mm -hmm. through. Um, but yeah, that was a little bit of my work before jumping into MAP. Yeah. And then how did you go about getting that started, getting MAP started? Because you're kind of an, you're, you're a fan uh, of entrepreneurs. And I am. <laughs> yes, yes. And are one yourself, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I always say entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And at that yeah. time, there were a lot of odds against us. For one, I had never started a nonprofit before. Mm -hmm. For two, I was very young. I was 23 years old. Mm -hmm. And I quickly noticed how a lot of, this was true in our space, maybe in other spaces, mm -hmm. a lot of major funders uh, were skeptical of, of young people. Mm -hmm. And very, if you, if you make any mistake, there is a narrative that, oh, you're not ready. Mm -hmm. So I always told our team, we have to perform twice as well to be taken equally as seriously. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was, we were challenging the business model of politics. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's extremely profitable to be divisive. Uh, political conflict and division uh, has become very financially profitable. Uh, a good example of this is if you watch the cable news at night, which mm -hmm. I do not recommend. <laughs> uh, if you if, like, you, you see this hate-based, you know, division-based business model uh, every night when you watch the cable news mm -hmm. uh, because they think that boosts ratings when you have people um, yelling at each other and not getting to the real solutions. And so that was a major strike against us mm -hmm. as well. So it was hard, but the way, you know, one of my values early on with MAP and, and the work I'm doing now was um, if you're not doing it the right way, it's not worth doing at all. Like mm -hmm. you got to lead with your values. Mm -hmm. And so I was very principled in saying this is the vision of the new politics that we want to spark in a country. This is mm -hmm. MAP's mission. And then I organized people around that. And it's a combination of really, really hard work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and some of the first steps we took were organizing our core group of volunteers. Uh, then um, then, you know, getting our first program off the ground. Uh, and then we were able to get some funding mm -hmm. and, and just being really uh, just persistent about getting all those pieces in place. Getting some media around your work is important too. Mm -hmm. But there was another dimension too, and it's almost uh, spiritual. And, um, you know, my favorite novel is The Alchemist. And we've talked you've, about yeah, this. Yeah, you recommended yeah. that to me. I bought it. I yes. haven't read it yet, but I bought it. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> and in The Alchemist, it talks about how when you walk in your purpose, the universe starts to conspire for your success. Mm -hmm. But to find that purpose, you usually have to take a big leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And I started to see how a lot of patterns in The Alchemist were coming real in my life when I took the leap of faith on Millennial Action Project. I knew we had a lot of reasons why this thing would not succeed. Um, but I do remember standing in front of, I was in, uh, uh, on a run in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. standing in front of the Dr. King Memorial. And I started to realize how, you know, Dr. King was in his 20s and 30s when he made his impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And 
the quotes there spoke to the mission that I was trying to elevate in our politics. Mm-hmm. When he talked about, for example, the mutuality of, of, of humankind, how we're all interconnected. And so I realized if I take the leap on, of faith on this, even though I might not have all the advantages that uh, maybe uh, a more traditional entrepreneur might have, um, it was still the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually there were some of those moments that you really can't explain where, you know, we had like, for example, when, when we did our public launch, it happened to be when the federal government was shutting down, which created a media environment where we got on every major national TV and Mm. and news outlet. And with a lot of that attention, then some significant foundation partners reached out to us Mm. saying, you're doing exactly what we are hoping to do. And they had just started new programs on democracy. And then they end up becoming our first major funders. And then I can hire staff. How, how could I predict all of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how could I have predicted that all of these pieces would come into place at the same time? Right. Um, but that's where you just got to trust your inner faith yeah, and uh, yeah. trust your gut. Yeah, and that's very sage advice for for every for you know particularly for for, for musicians. musicians too. Yeah. yeah, exactly because it is not an easy road. But um, if you know that this is what you're meant to do, and and you you feel like that you have a message that that needs to get out there, mm-hmm. um, it yes, do it, do it, find any means and and any way, and let the universe just kind of guide you and read yes. the Alchemist, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I um, who is that by again? It's by Paulo Coelho. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Go find it. I, it's on my bookshelf. I just got to open it up. <laughs> <laughs> and how long were you in Washington then? So I was actually splitting my time uh, okay. between. Uh, I was nomadic for a number yeah. of years. Yeah. Uh, Millennial Action Project started here in Wisconsin. Was inspired by what I was seeing with the political dynamic here in the state, but quickly grew into a national Mm -hmm. organization. So I was on the road basically every week, splitting my time between Mm -hmm. Wisconsin, D.C., and really traveling the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So that was my life for about eight years or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now you're full-time in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, And you have been hosting your own podcast along the way. When did you start your own podcast? So that was maybe a year and a half ago or so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We started thinking about it for maybe two years. And um, part of the idea was uh, how can, you know, Wisconsin is a many ways a Mm -hmm. crossroads of the country and also a tipping point state for the country. Uh, So it's interesting. There are a lot of like national columnists who have flown into Wisconsin to understand what's so unique about this place. Why are the politics here so unusual? And so my thinking was, well, let's turn that on its head. Let's elevate Wisconsin voices to inform the national conversation on truly what are the social, political and economic forces here? What are some of the exciting, dynamic young leaders here speaking to that might inform the, the national conversation? Yeah. So, so and what, what has that reception been like? Uh, I mean, are people listening to the podcast? Are they, mm-hmm. what do they think of it? What are the comments? Is Are you elevating Wisconsin? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that was the whole goal yeah. to elevate Wisconsin. And the response has been incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been in a combination of being able to elevate a story here in Wisconsin mm-hmm. that maybe the national audience needed to hear. So for mm-hmm. example, we did a whole show on the rise of farming bankruptcies in the state. Small family Mm -hmm. farmers are are facing a really tough time Mm -hmm. right now in the state. And so I wanted to shine a spotlight uh, on that issue. Uh, And also, 
have been able to talk with some national uh, voices as well, like uh, one of the the lead political reporter for the Washington Post who has done, you know, writing on Wisconsin. I've had uh, elected officials on there as well. And one thing I get some of the most joy out of this is when we can bring elected officials together uh, and voices together across uh, party lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of our Millennial Action Project members here in Wisconsin were, uh, have been part of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we've been able to elevate issues, but also model the type of political and discourse and honestly just conversation in general mm-hmm. uh, that I think we need to have. Yeah, absolutely. It's called meeting in middle America because it has kind of a dual meaning in that sense. Like, yes, we're geographically in the middle of the country, uh, but also uh, politically in the middle. And, and, and ultimately, the way we're going to move forward as a, as a society is by having conversations, is yeah. by listening, and, and that's what the podcast yeah. is meant to promote. Very clever. Yeah. I like that. And I like how you didn't say north middle because um, you don't – yeah, Wisconsin yeah. is so far north, but but don't talk about that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's really, really cool. And um, and and so talk about now mm-hmm. you're, you're looking into doing something more than, than just running the nonprofit – not that that wasn't already enough. Yeah. Um, that was a, a big task, and it's done amazing things, and it's, and it's grown exponentially, right? And, yes. Um, in, fa- in following and, and just in, in what you've accomplished. But now tell me about the, the U.S. Senate uh, exploration here. Yeah, yeah. Well, one way of thinking about it is uh, MAP successfully uh, implemented the vision and, and built a generation now mm-hmm. six, nearly 2,000 uh, young elected leaders across the country. We've touched uh, tens of thousands mm-hmm. of people uh, across the state and across the country. And now I really believe, and this is not just my thinking, it's the urging of a number of people um, who I highly trust. And now is the time to take this inclusive model of democracy and elevate it to a new level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And when a number of mentors asked me to to consider the U.S. Senate race, I, I felt like this is the kind of race where we could make an original contribution. And when you think about how Wisconsin, again, will be a tipping point state likely in 2022, this is the kind of race where if we can build the lane of a inclusion politics, a dignity-based politics, it's going to have a ripple effect across our state and across the country. It'll change how people approach politics. It'll change how people run for office. And so I started to feel truly a kind of moral calling uh, to Mm -hmm. really look at this race seriously and really do it the right way. So we talked a lot about listening. So when we announced the exploratory committee for the U.S. Senate a few weeks ago, it was premised on the idea of doing more listening than talking. It's not writing off any voters, not prejudging what they think. It's listening with a lot of humility. You know, we have a lot of partisanship in our politics right now. And I notice that partisanship devol- dissolves very quickly when you hear someone's lived experience. Mm-hmm. When you hear someone's personal truth, there's no denying it. It mm-hmm. is real. And often there's a concern that we need to help solve. That, to me, when I hear a dairy farmer talk about the challenges of surviving, when I hear a Mexican restaurant owner who I spoke to in Delavan, Wisconsin recently, mm-hmm. who um, is just trying to get by day to day, she's having a lot of trouble hiring right now. Mm-hmm. Or I was up in Kiwani County in Algoma, and uh, broadband access is a big issue up there. If they want to attract young people, mm-hmm. 
you need to have broadband access so they can start businesses and, mm -hmm. and have a more modern lifestyle. These, in my view, are human stories, human mm -hmm. experiences. And so if we can elevate that through a U.S. Senate campaign, I think it will be very powerful. So it's been a lot of fun so far. But, yeah, yeah it's uh, that's the next journey we're exploring as they run for the U.S. Senate here in Wisconsin yeah. for 2022. Yeah. Well, good luck and congratulations on this big Thank new you. chapter. And, oh, yeah. I got to add one thing to that, which is related to music and the arts, you know, I think the best kind of campaigns are those that are truly authentic, mm -hmm. live by the values of the candidate and the mission. And so because music inspired my interest in politics, because I think music has what's right about our democracy, uh, I've, I've sought to include artists and musicians in our mm -hmm. events. And, and you helped us with our first roundtable right, at Mobcraft, right. uh, having some musicians there. And I personally also plan on performing on the campaign trail. That's um, awesome. Someone on our creative team was like, oh, my gosh. So you're saying, like, we're going to have Bob Dylan essentially running for U.S. Senate here <laughs> in Wisconsin? And it is that kind of thing. I have been writing a lot of folk songs that are allowing me to connect with people yeah. on a deeper level. So we'll be taking that acoustic guitar on the campaign trail. Yeah, I was really excited when you were starting to talk about that because I yeah. know, I think when we first talked, uh, when we first met last summer, um, you weren't you were a little bit shyer about the music. Maybe yes. would you say that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is so. This is a very recent development yes. of merging my musical life and identity with the political life right. and identity, and and it only merged together recently with a documentary film. Okay. And so f the film is called The Reunited States. It's now available on Amazon Prime and uh, iTunes and a number of other streaming platforms. It's a documentary film that we're part of producing. Mm -hmm. And it profiles four Americans who are on the front lines of bridging our political and racial divisions in the country. And uh, I'm one of those stories. And it, they follow my journey here in Wisconsin oh, cool. and also traveling across the country. And it was the director's vision to say the audience needs to see how your music is coming together with the politics. He said... Every time we talk about why you're involved in politics, you keep coming back to jazz music. So we need to include that. And so he, I really give him credit for this, he created a jazz performance for me to play at yeah. that is in the documentary. And that was the first time that my music and my politics were merging physically in one creative product. And I realized from that, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think maybe previously I was more hesitant because... Mm -hmm. Music is a very vulnerable uh, expression in many ways. If, it is, if, yeah. You know, from my experience, if I'm writing a song, I'm singing the song, and then playing it on guitar, I'm offering my heart up to mm -hmm. the audience uh, to do what they will with it. Mm -hmm. It puts you in a very vulnerable position. And, um, and, you know, I didn't see a lot of vulnerability, I guess, in politics. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's one reason why it was separate. But I now truly believe that merging them together is the right way to go mm -hmm. um, because I think the best kind of politics is the kind uh, that is authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think political leaders who, are, who have the courage and the confidence to be vulnerable in front of people is what's going to create that deeper connection, mm -hmm. is going to create that trust. And maybe that's the way that we can rebuild a sense of connection and, inclu and inclusion in our political process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad for you that you decided to, you know, come out of your shell with yes, it for yes. sure. I'm because I think it's very much relatable, and and it will, it shows a really great side of you that that people will really want to know. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I was gonna ask you real quickly about the. Um, what you've discovered in, in working and, and being around at different parts of Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin is very divided um, mm. politically, racially in some parts, um, you know, even even musically. And that's one of the things that I'm personally working on in, in working in a business where we work with all different genres of musicians. We're trying to kind of bridge the gap with, with music, um, you know, trying to show people that no matter what genre you're in, if mm. it's anything from hip-hop to, you know, uh, singer-songwriter kind of stuff to yoga music to classical, like mm. everyone has the same goals and why not learn from each other, you know? But what have you learned from, what can you talk about from the state of Wisconsin? That's a fascinating point. So, yeah, I, well, so Wisconsin has become, as a result of some national headlines mm. we've had over the last couple of years, we've become sort of the symbol of, polarized trench warfare politics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot beneath the surface there. As you referenced, you have, for example, the racial and political divide of greater Milwaukee, mm -hmm. um, which is the starkest in the entire country. Uh, you know, you can go to a very democratic liberal area and then within a few miles go to some of the most red conservative Republican areas. And that proximity uh, is somewhat unique in in the United States, um, or at least the the, the incidence of that is, is starkest here. And you know when you think about how the economy is evolving too, you have places like Dane County, in particular, mm -hmm. getting a lot of venture capital investment. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of tech startups coming online, and then you have more rural counties uh, that aren't seeing uh, those types of benefits and aren't seeing those investments, and so there's one response that says, well, let's continue to become more bifurcated mm -hmm. as a society. But I think we cannot truly leave each other. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can just say goodbye uh, to right. people uh, who live within our states. And so I think the better approach is seeing how is the economy changing in more rural parts of the state, uh, whether you're in, you know, take, um, you know, uh, the driftless area, for example, one of my favorite parts mm -hmm. of the state, southwestern Wisconsin, that is um, really an interesting um, fusion of cultures right now. You have people out there who are, you know, multi-generational farmers, in many cases, very, I would say, libertarian or conservative, but you also have people who are attracted there by the outdoors and the scenery, people who are very kind of, I would describe them as as liberal, like driving their Toyota Priuses uh, around. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing, you know, you have the headquarters of Organic Valley and Go mm -hmm. Macro bars, uh, you know, these like healthy snacks and healthy foods out there. So you have these divergent cultures coexisting out there, um, which is fascinating. And so we can either just like write off certain parts of the state, and I see political leaders doing that, I think, uh, to their detriment. Or you could actually see this really interesting nuance that's emerging uh, that, to me, is just yearning for honesty and integrity and, and help, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, people need relief right now. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I'm trying to create a politics that truly sees the dignity and humanity uh, of a farmer in Viola, Wisconsin, uh, a tech entrepreneur in, Mawa- in, in Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. a formerly incarcerated business leader, mm-hmm. maybe someone who was at the roundtable mm-hmm. we were at together here in Milwaukee, and a dairy farmer in Alcorn, a restaurant owner in Delavan, and a conservationist up in Algoma. You know, I, I think there is a way that we can tie all this together in a mm-hmm. coalition of dignity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very well said. Thanks for sharing that. And then um, I wanted to ask you about this article that you had, you had sent me a little while back um, to build it back better, find the jazz in democracy. Can you, and, and so a lot of what you've talked about um, in, in not just your campaign, campaign but in, in everything you do is, is comparing democracy or politics, politics in general to jazz. Um, am, am I getting that correct? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what was in that article and where people might find it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's on a platform called Nation Swell. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they reached out to me. They had seen that I'd spoken about this jazz democracy mm-hmm. connection in a lot of speeches, but I'd never actually written it down. Mm-hmm. And it's a concept that is, you know, in many ways personal to my experience, but also personal to i mean it's very deeply intertwined in the story of america too you know i was realizing how for example you know jazz kind of tracks with the story of democracy in in the country first of all the creation of jazz was born uh out of a fusion of of uh afro-caribbean and european classical influences in new orleans uh, born out of a lot of struggles that um, were faced there by uh, particularly African Americans. Mm-hmm. But speaking, uh, kind of channeling a lot of that hurt and pain in the music. And then you fast forward to really the heyday of jazz in the 1950s and 60s, where you have Miles Davis and Bill Evans coming from very different backgrounds racially, who then come together to produce the greatest selling jazz record of all time, Kind of Blue. And why is that significant? It's not just that the music was great, but it was how they were pushing society at the time to transcend and bridge the black-white racial divide. You would have uh, multiracial audiences coming out to their show, probably uh, to some degree modeled by what they were doing on stage. And so music and jazz in particular has always been this revolutionary, innovative art form that's kind of pushing uh, society forward. And often government and politics is, is trying to catch up uh, mm-hmm. with that. And then I analyze it in the sense of what can we learn from jazz specifically? In jazz, we talk about jazz modes. What are the mm-hmm. modes that we can take away? And I break it down into three mm-hmm. things. The number one thing is listening. I still will never forget my first day at jazz camp at the conservatory mm-hmm. here in Milwaukee. We were all excited to play, and our jazz instructor says, we're not going to play a note today. We're going to put our instruments away and listen. And he said, the most important skill in jazz is listening. And I remember we just sat that entire time listening to the jazz greats like Dizzy Gillespie and uh, John Coltrane and Miles Davis and others. But it was also about listening to our fellow musicians and building a real bond with them. So that's powerful. The second thing I highlight in the piece is 
the idea of improvisation jazz is at its core an improvised art form and why is improv improvisation so exciting it's because you'll never hear an improvised jazz piece played the same way twice mm -hmm. every single performance is original to that moment to the feelings and emotions and, and energies that are surrounding that and the way you improvise well um, is by being fully present with people. And I highlight this because often in politics, when you have the conversation about bridging political divides, sometimes there's this narrative of, well, I need to check my beliefs at the door, or we need to find some kind of least common de denominator and dilute our solutions. And I'm saying the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And jazz and improvisation is a great example because the best improv improvisation is when you bring your full story to the table, you bring your lived experiences, you bring your full identity. Mm -hmm. And with that foundation, you're able to communicate with other musicians in real time. Mm -hmm. And that's why the music is so dynamic. You're often hearing someone else's lived experience and then incorporating your own experience and reinventing the idea. That is why it's so dynamic. And then that takes us to the third piece is call and response mm -hmm. you know jazz probably more than any other art form is a call and response art form and i compare that to our democracy in the sense that democracy at its best is a call and response political system you're hearing someone else and then responding uh, with your perspective um, but it does start with hearing people mm -hmm. and i think right now our political culture has devolved a little bit into more of a call and shut down culture. Mm -hmm. We're shutting down perspectives instead of this more open and inclusive and elevating call and response mm -hmm. mentality. So I think that's a helpful frame maybe to think about our political discourse. So those are the three big ones, listening, mm -hmm. improvisation, call and mm -hmm. response. Yeah, really great analogies there. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to link the, the article in the show notes on this one. So I know I have that somewhere. Um, thank you for, for explaining that more for us. And, uh, and then I wanted to just ask you um, quickly, are there any lessons that you have learned along the way, either mm. in politics or in music, that you can share? I'd like to ask the people on the show here, um, what lessons have you learned that you would like to pass on that maybe others can, can learn from before they um, <laughs> get, at the, get themselves into trouble or something? Yes. Yeah. I, oh, I think a lot of people tuning in yeah. right now are probably – in the mindset of taking big risks with their mm -hmm. lives, they're entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. and like you said, maybe getting into trouble in a good way. Mm -hmm. as, as John Lewis, the great civil rights icon, he would talk about good trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, my, when, early on, it, when I, I feel like a gear, like I reached a new gear in my life, mm -hmm. went out towards the end of high school, where I felt liberated truly to pursue uh, what I was passionate about and what I felt was right in the mm -hmm. world, as opposed to a more maybe traditional career track. And I remember a mentor around that time said, it was like the right piece of wisdom at the right time. Mm -hmm. He said, if you think someone ought to do something, that person's probably you. <laughs> and that's another way of articulating the alchemist message. Sure. And so when you go to bed at night, usually you have a few different voices in you. There's a voice that's maybe more in your mind or more in your brain 
that is maybe in a healthy way trying to be a little skeptical and questioning and doubting maybe some of the things that you're trying to do. And then on a deeper level, you have that inner voice coming from your heart that is saying what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that for anyone who's trying to, in my case, when I'm launching a nonprofit, now launching a political campaign, uh, being an entrepreneurial musician, I think my experience has been uh, just going for it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just go for it. You know, you, you want to build a network of support around mm-hmm. you to especially help to catch you if you fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I think when I started to have this mentality of like, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, w- w- why not? go after the change you want to see in the world or Mm -hmm. why not put out the spirit into the world that you think is needed. Mm -hmm. And maybe a helpful way of thinking about this is having a more cosmic perspective on our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about the the course of humanity is is about, you know, 200,000 years old. And when you think about, where we sit in the larger universe, uh, you know, we're, we're connected to this universe. We're, we're both kind of sm- really small and really big at the same time. And when you think about our lives on that kind of time scale, you know, it helps to put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and it, in my case, it helped me reflect on how can I be a catalyst? How can I be a catalyst for greater love and compassion in this world? through the modalities available to me, whether that's in music or politics. And everyone who's listening right now will have their own modalities Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So I think if you can reflect on what the meaning of your life might be in that larger perspective, what kind of ripple effect might we want to have? What kind of energy do we want to uh, exude? Um, Then that might be clarifying in terms of what are the specific things can I, that you want to do on a daily basis to work towards that larger life mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And Getting a little deep yeah, there. Yeah, no, I love it. No, this is great. Really, really good stuff. And then the last question that I have for you is uh, you uh, you have written your own original music, and mm-hmm. um, there's a song that you have submitted for this, uh, which we'll play right after the interview. But uh, it is called The Road. Can you tell us a little bit about that song? Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote this song during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I started actually a whole solo project during the pandemic and got a lot of, I think I had a lot of ideas I just wanted Mm -hmm. to express. And I I got some additional technology to help me do that. And I was reflecting on when I wrote this song, The Road, it was um, earlier in the spring. I want to say it was probably February or March. And, um, no, I'm sorry. It was last fall. It was last fall. So we're really deep in the pandemic. And I was reflecting on just how, because we're not doing as many in-person gatherings, a lot of our lives were increasingly digital and on our phones. And already leading into the pandemic, I was concerned about how In politics, for example, I call it the political industrial complex. There's, as I was talking about earlier, there's a model around stoking fear and division in people and dehumanizing others in the name of profit. 
And I was seeing those trends amplified, exacerbated during the pandemic and how our minds were being controlled by, you know, social media algorithms and by political um, self-gain. And I was seeking a way to express that, but also try and move people into another space of personal liberation. For me, one example of that was uh, meditation and mindfulness uh, and also just having a healthy level of disconnection from your electronic devices uh, every day. So in the course, I talk about um, the freedom of, of your mind that you can find in your own mind and uh, how that's one of the most important things. You know, Nelson Mandela, when he was uh, locked away in prison at Robben Island in South Africa, he would talk about how the prison guards could take everything away from him except his mind. Mm -hmm. He said, only I can decide if mm -hmm. I'm going to imprison my mind. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of message I was trying to convey with the song is we can decide if we want our minds to be imprisoned or liberated. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that is the road that is the kind of long journey we have, mm -hmm. uh, for us to, uh, pursue in, in the course of our lives. Mm -hmm. Nice. So many things to think about today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. And is uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you might like to add? Well, I'll, I'll there, there's one life experience I had yeah. actually during the pandemic that actually sums up the journey I've been on musically and politically and the call to action that I hope we all have. And so maybe because it sums everything together, I'll show, share this story. Uh, and it speaks also to your question about advice of what we should be doing with our lives during this short period of time we have on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And so I talked about earlier how I made the decision to start Millennial Action Project standing in front of the Dr. King Memorial. So that was really the beginning of the journey. Now, the bookend of the journey when I was getting ready to pass the torch at Millennial Action Project um, was with his eldest son, Martin Luther King III. And the way that happened was we had our annual conference and it is essentially like a day of training for our young leaders from across the country. And after 10 years of really trying to figure out how to articulate this inclusive dignity-based politics, I thought the King philosophy was the best articulation of it. Uh, you know, Dr. King believed in this concept of radical love. He called it agape love, mm -hmm. which is essentially not necessarily romantic love, but the idea of how we should be our best and most charitable selves to everyone, considering that we're all children of God. That mm -hmm. was the kind of guiding philosophy he had. And so I thought his eldest son would be able to speak to that. So we had an amazing day of trainings. And at the end of the day, him and I had a very powerful and emotional personal conversation. What got us into it was talking about Dr. King's final speech before he was assassinated. It's called the mountaintop speech. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about how his father had reached that point of true personal liberation. When you hear the speech, you can sense that he has entered into a new gear of spiritual being. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's a little bit of what kind of the song is about of how we can get to that, that place. Mm -hmm. And then I asked Mr. King a question that had been on my mind for 10 years of studying the King philosophy. And I asked him, 
how would your father be responding to the polarization and disillusionment of this moment? And he said a phrase that entered my soul on a really deep level. He said, my father would be calling us to a higher order, a higher order of politics. I love that language, calling mm -hmm. us to a higher order of politics. And then he said, that, that's exactly what you're trying to do, and, and you need uh, a larger audience for it. Mm -hmm. And so that, in many ways, summed up the mission of Millennial Action Project. Mm -hmm. It sums up the spirit of personal liberation and full uh, authentic expression that I hope to do through music. And it sums up the mission statement for this U.S. campaign, mm -hmm. U.S. Senate campaign that we're exploring here in Wisconsin. If we can call Wisconsinites to a higher order of politics, then it's going to be a fundamental cultural shift mm -hmm. to almost how we even relate to each other and hopefully surfaces not only a better politics, but a a better form of interaction between us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well said. I love that. I'll have to remember that myself. Yeah, and where, Steve, so where can we find more information on you, Stephen Alcara? Yes. yes, thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. So everyone can follow along on social media. Mm -hmm. I'm at Stephen Olicara on Twitter, Instagram, and find me on Facebook as well. And then our website is stephenolicara.com. That's the central portal of the movement we're building for inclusion and dignity here in Wisconsin. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being here on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. for sure. All right. Have a good one. Thanks.
We are grateful for the patron support of the Premier in Green Bay. Thank you for always being of assistance to us and to other in the arts community in your neck of the woods. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll leave ratings and reviews for us wherever you're listening from. Visit themusiciansventure.com for more information on upcoming guests, show notes, and ways to send us your topic suggestions. The Musicians Venture podcast is hosted by Allison M., recorded at Podcast Town in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music written and performed by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again. <laughs>